Hello and welcome to season three of the Fixing Healthcare podcast. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I'm also the host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast. Uh, with me today is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our monthly podcast aimed at addressing the failures of the American healthcare system and finding solutions to make it once again the best in the world. Our focus this season is on the role of government in healthcare. As always, we invite you, the listeners, to share your thoughts on this topic. Please visit my website, robertpearlmd.com, to take the new Fixing Healthcare survey. We've been reading and discussing the best listener suggestions throughout this season. In this episode, we welcome former presidential candidate and current House Representative Eric Swalwell from California's 15th Congressional District. A rising star in the Democratic Party, Eric serves on several House committees, including the high-profile Judiciary and Intelligence Committees. He is now in his fourth term and joins us today to offer his thoughts on the role of government in advancing our nation's healthcare agenda. Welcome, Eric. We're thrilled to have you on the show. What are the three biggest changes you would make to American healthcare if you could? All right, well, uh, thank you so much for having me on uh, the podcast. First and foremost, uh, you know, I would make sure that uh, every family in America, you know, has access to healthcare. Uh, and healthcare to me includes prescription drugs. And, and I think we have uh, the wealth as a nation to make sure uh, that that's the case. Certainly the Affordable Care Act has gotten us uh, closer there, but I still see too many families where, you know, a bad diagnosis or an expensive prescription drug can uh, wipe them out. Uh, but the second, I think it's really about uh, the future uh, of medicine uh, in that, you know, we need to be a country of cures again and investing in cures in our lifetime uh, by dramatically increasing, uh, you know, what we spend on genomics and targeted therapies and, and just making sure we know more uh, at the beginning of life about who we are so we can have better therapies throughout life and just better uh, understanding when a bad diagnosis comes. And then third, it would be, you know, to just make sure that our children, uh, you know, at the earliest of ages are educated about diet uh, and exercise. And uh, I think Michelle Obama uh, was the biggest person to try and, you know, make strides on this. And she was ridiculed uh, and it was politicized, sadly. But, you know, I, I think really making sure that our kids uh, and what they eat at school and in and, and their preschools it really uh, set them on a course uh, for a healthy lifestyle so that, you know, you can head off uh, some of the costlier issues that they would uh, take on later in life. What do you see as the role of Congress in making each of these improvements happen? Yeah. So on the first one, you know, I'm a, a big supporter of, you know, Medicare for anyone who wants it. Essentially, you know, a hybrid system where the federal government would dramatically increase what it contributes to healthcare to have a, a public option, not to eliminate private insurance, but uh, with a robust public option uh, to make private insurance, uh, you know, more competitive and, and frankly, uh, more accountable on their costs and, and, and who uh, is covered. Also, when it comes to cures, though, you know, the, the private sector can do so much. And that's why, you know, I don't want to give up on the private sector. That There's so much they can do that the federal government just cannot do. 
And I think when it comes to cures, uh, the private sector, you know, that's where you find the ingenuity uh, in the people. Uh, but it's really going to take public funding to get there. And we're, and we're so close, you know, whether it's ALS, and there's so much hope uh, that this year there's going to be uh, treatments for ALS. I've, I've been working with a group called imals.org, and they've seen great strides through medicine. Also on pancreatic cancer, the University of Nebraska believes that they're just a millimeter away in being able to detect pancreatic cancer in stage one. And, and so it's really investing, you know, public funds uh, to find those cures uh, that I think can get us there and ultimately expand access and bring down the cost. And that takes bipartisan leadership in Congress. Listening to members of Congress in both the House and the Senate, drug prices and the behaviors of the drug companies have been consistently labeled unacceptable and irresponsible. Yet significant legislation to address the problem has not been enacted. Why is that? We recently passed uh, prescription drug reform uh, in the House, uh, but I, I would agree with you that you know, we've not seen enough bipartisan progress in that. You know, I'd like to see you know, more Republicans, especially with the president who's talked about prescription drug reform, uh, show you know, more seriousness. Because controlling, one, the costs, two, uh, opening up markets uh, you know, as long as imported drugs are uh, safe and that patients in the United States would have rights to the courts if you know, they're not safe, I, I think that certainly uh, should be explored. But, but also looking at you know, our, our patent process to make sure uh, that you're not stymieing competition. Uh, so uh, I, I think that's a real opportunity. Uh, again, the president has talked about it, and I'll take him at his word uh, that he wants to do something on prescription drugs, but we're going to need leadership to get uh, you know, the prescription drug bill that we passed in the House uh, to get a vote or you know, some sort of reform in the Senate. In my role, I've tried to work on precision medicine and have formed with a Republican the Personalized Medicine Caucus. Uh, I, I recently formed that with Tom Emmer of uh, Minnesota. And uh, we have two senators, uh, Tim Scott, a Republican from South Carolina, and Kirsten Sinema, a Democrat from Arizona, who are leading that in the Senate. And so uh, that caucus work uh, particularly on individualized medicine, which, as you know, is a rapidly advancing field uh, where physicians can use diagnostic texts, uh, as I was talking about earlier, uh, with genomics to find specialized procedures for each patient. So my, my hope is that precision medicine can be the future. And I also have a, a legislation in the Congress called Access to Precision Medicine Act. It's got bipartisan uh, support. And so we're you know, trying, I think medicine has to be uh, bipartisan, uh, you know, any legislation in that area. And that's where I've you know, tried to lead. We recently had James Carville on our show, and he talked about the possibility of all, a lot of this research, particularly in the areas you're describing, precision medicine, genomics, as being funded by the government, but owned by the government rather than owned by the private drug companies. Do you have a view of that as a congressman? Well, I, I certainly uh, am open to that. And, you know, I, I, I do like the idea, uh, you know, just as, you know, it was the government through the Department of Defense that launched the internet, uh, I, I think you're going to see the same thing, you know, with uh, genomics. And my concern, is, and my priority every time we write legislation like this is that you're not enabling a cure that is only available to the wealthy, that uh, it's a cure that uh, would be expansive and uh, it wouldn't take decades for the rest of America to be able to afford it. And that's often the case with, you know, most therapies today is that it's really only av available, you know, for people of means. And, and I would like to move away with that. So is, Mr. Carville's idea, I think, 
is probably in that spirit, and I'm certainly open to that. Would you favor the government then being able to negotiate for the prices of these very expensive yeah, drugs? I should have I should have mentioned that earlier. Yes, I, I do. In, in prescription drug reform, that, that was part of uh, what we had passed, and, and I do support giving the government greater you know, leverage in negotiating you know, what the prices are. Excellent. A recent article in the New England Journal of Medicine demonstrated that hospital consolidation has led to higher prices, but reduced services, and at best unchanged or even declining quality. Should Congress pass legislation to address this type of monopolistic pricing, as it does across almost every other industry in the United States? Yes, uh, and not just with hospitals, uh, but we're seeing this. Uh, when I ran for president, I saw this uh, as far also uh, with uh, agriculture, uh, that uh, market consolidation you know, has affected uh, our sources for food. And this is becoming a problem in America. It's also, as you see, you know, the Amazon effect on uh, small businesses and, and retailers uh, that it, we, I think, have lost you know, the reins that we've had before uh, on uh, monopolies, and, and we certainly should make sure we have that the next president has a Department of Justice uh, that is looking at anti-competitive practices, uh, not only to include uh, hospitals, but to make sure that that communities are not being left out, particularly rural communities that are not seen as as profitable uh, as hospitals consolidate. Because as a candidate for president, I saw in Iowa and New Hampshire in particular that patients had to drive uh, hours, uh, you know, to see a doctor. And yes, there's there have been advances in telemedicine, and I, I support those, uh, but there are some things that, you know, you still need to come in uh, for a procedure, and uh, it's becoming more and more prohibited. So when it comes to health care, how should we delineate the responsibility of government versus the personal responsibility of the individual? Yeah, it, it's a great question, and we have, and I talk to friends about, conservative friends about this all the time, and I, I don't think they're wrong when they say that we do have a, a personal responsibility uh, for our own behavior, uh, meaning that eating healthy and, and you know prevent taking preventive acts uh, by being seen earlier to make sure you can catch a diagnosis earlier uh, and, and just use more preventative uh, means, but also exercising as often as possible. And, and when I have these conversations with my friends, I remind them, as I told you earlier, you know Michelle Obama actually tried uh, some of this and was criticized as being you know kind of big brother in the classroom or big government uh, trying to tell your kids what they're supposed to eat. Uh, and I'm just a believer as a parent of a two-year-old and a one-year-old that what I do right now with my kids uh, will shape and form how they make decisions for the rest of their lives. And so that's why it's, it's so important that my wife and I give them healthy uh, food options, which doesn't mean that you know they can't have uh, snacks and they can't have ice cream after dinner. Uh, but they have a balanced diet and that as they get older, uh, we continue to you know, encourage recreation and exercise and outdoor activities so that that guides them for the rest of their life. And I, I think that can be almost uh, half the battle uh, when it comes to healthcare. And so that comes, to, comes down to parenting uh, and you know, what our teachers do with our children in the classroom. And we shouldn't see that as big government. We should just see that as uh, big savings. As a small business owner, you know, I look around and see, you know, or even talk to a lot of other people who are interested in starting small businesses, but are concerned about the cost of health insurance and just, you know, that being the biggest hurdle to overcome when it comes to starting your own small business, if you don't have a spouse or something like that, that can cover your health insurance. Um, do you think that kind of limits 
uh, innovation and potential other other small businesses starting up is the cost of health insurance as a major deterrent for kind of innovation. I, I do. I, I see two uh, two drivers uh, that are leading to fewer and fewer uh, young people starting businesses because entrepreneurship among millennials is actually in decline. And the, and the two drivers I see uh, are one, the startup capital you need uh, to start a business, and, and that's largely tied to the student loan debt. Uh, and that relates back to medicine because uh, a lot of uh, doctors and dentists uh, come out with uh, $300,000, $400,000 in student loan debt, uh, which is preventing them from having their own practice. And they join large practice groups. And that's a part of the consolidation problem that Robbie was talking about earlier. Uh, the second issue uh, is, yes, even if you can get the capital to you know, finance a good idea, the cost of providing healthcare uh, you know, to your workforce uh, is uh, certainly intimidating. Now, as you know, the Affordable Care Act, I believe is 50 employees or more is, is what you uh, must have uh, to be required to provide healthcare. If you have less than that, you're not required. But if you want to be competitive, uh, you're going to have to provide healthcare um, you know, to your employees. And, and that's why I think you know, investing in a public option can drive down not only the cost you know, of healthcare public plan, but also ideally uh, with public insurance plans. I live in rural Iowa. I grew up in rural Iowa and still live in Iowa. And I would say the majority of people you talk to that are lower, to mid, mid, lower middle income to middle income who are, you know, make too much money to qualify for Medicaid or anything like that, who have health insurance, but extremely high deductibles know that if they use their health insurance, they're going to get hit with, you know, potentially $7,000 in bills or, or whatever, depending on their deductible that they cannot afford. They don't have that kind of money sitting around. And those people are completely disheartened, discouraged, think there's no hope in sight. What message do you have to uh, those people? Yeah, uh, fight for better, more affordable, accessible, you know, healthcare. And that doesn't mean that we throw overboard, you know, the private uh, insurance markets, but we shouldn't have to live that way. And, I, and I'm familiar with that. Uh, and uh, any young parent is, you know, we uh, had a daughter in October 2018. And we are still, I'm not kidding you, receiving bills from the delivery. And it, it's, it's just maddening. Um, and, and this is, you know, actually a part of the surprise billing problem uh, in America, but it's also tied for us uh, as far as, you know, the deductible issue and, and what you ultimately are on the hook for. And I think a lack of transparency is also an issue. There's, there's no other uh, good or service that we consume in our lives uh, where we truly get the service and have really no idea what it's going to cost or why it's going to cost as much as it does. And, you know, that's something I think government in a bipartisan way can work on as well. Well, and I think, too, you know, the vast majority of consumers, when they get that medical bill in the mail, have no idea what it means. Yes, that, and that includes this member of Congress you know, and, his, and his wife. And, and, and you know, my, what my wife and I do is um, we'll, we'll go back, look at the policy, uh, you know, try and figure it out. And then my wife calls and she fights the insurance companies. And she said something to me recently. She said, what do people do who cannot spend 45 minutes during the day fighting an insurance company? If they have a shift job and they get a 15-minute break or they get off work when the insurance company is closed. And I told her, they either just pay it or they go, you know, deep, deep into, you know, credit issues because they can't afford to pay it. Or they often declare bankruptcy for yeah, one of the most right. common causes in the United States being healthcare. Healthcare and student loan debt. And those are two of the issues uh, that, are, that I think, you know, we can do something about in Congress. 
I was very impressed by your performance on the presidential debate. I was disappointed you were not given a lot more time. What's it like running for president of the United States? It's a test of confidence. Uh, it's exciting in many ways, but uh, you know, every day, you know, you have to find the confidence in yourself uh, to believe that you know you can not only do the job, which I, I believe I could do, and not only make the country better, which I is the reason I ran. You know, but you're matching up against people who have uh, you know phenomenal backgrounds and qualifications and ideas. And, uh, you know, I would say that was the, the part that I didn't expect to grapple with as much. And, and I think uh, I have much more respect now for anyone who's ever emerged as a nominee, you know, for their party, because uh, you will not have only have passed a, a test of confidence with the voters, which is important, uh, but a test of confidence uh, in yourself, which I think is just uh, just as challenging. And, and so, you know, I, I learned a lot about who we are as a country, and I think my own constituents uh, on the issues of gun violence and uh, also just cures in our lifetime, which was also an initiative we ran on, uh, will benefit because I'm still going to fight for those uh, in Congress. Eric, thank you so much. Of course. For being on the of show. Course. Thank you both. I appreciate your leadership in Congress and hope that you'll make another run for president four years from now. Okay. Thank you, Robbie. Thank you, Jeremy. Yep, my pleasure. My pleasure. Robbie, we just heard some provocative ideas from a major voice in the U.S. House of Representatives. I'd like to ask you to break down for our listeners some of the ideas that stood out to you. Let's begin with what Eric calls Medicare for anyone that wants it. In the Democratic debates, voters have essentially heard three different health care policies. On the far left, Senators Sanders and Warren back Medicare for all which guarantees healthcare coverage to every American. Closer to the center, we have candidates like Joe Biden, who wants to improve upon our nation's existing healthcare law, the Affordable Care Act. Splitting the ideologic difference is Medicare for some, or Medicare for all who want it, which may have Pete Buttigieg supports. In the past, I've described this as Medicare for all in slow motion because the most vocal proponents have publicly called it a natural glide path to single payer. In the short term, this option would expand the availability of Medicare while allowing individuals to keep their private insurance if they prefer it. It would be a great solution for consumers in markets with only one option because it would create competition. On the other hand, it's not yet clear how the government would set the pricing. It's a little discussed fact that the Medicare program reimburses doctors and hospitals at 90% of the cost to deliver care to the 60 million beneficiaries. Therefore, private insurers offset these costs, paying about 130% of the actual cost to treat American workers and their dependents. So if Medicare becomes available to more people, at the current reimbursement level, then the government will have an unfair competitive advantage over co commercial insurance plans. As commercial health insurance prices go up, more patients will gravitate toward the public option and eventually the private pool will dry up. The end result will be Medicare for all, which leads now to a second set of problems. Reimbursing all doctors and hospitals at 90% of the fully allocated cost will either force hospitals to close or will require major tax increases. Neither option will be popular with the public. 
Ultimately, voters must recognize that it doesn't matter who pays for your health care, whether it's the government or private insurance companies, the real problem is the cost of delivering health care, which continues to rise faster than inflation and faster than workers' wages. Simply offering Medicare to a larger segment of the population doesn't solve the issue. Great points, Ravi. So what did you think about Representative Swalwell's ideas for addressing the various issues with the pharmaceutical industry and the individual drug companies? Eric has spent a lot of time exploring this area, and I concur with many of his suggestions. He points out that the goal of researching new medications should be to find cures for diseases that threaten human health. I particularly like his focus on creating private-public partnerships as an approach to bring effective medications to patients sooner. The ongoing coronavirus epidemic is a powerful example. Hopefully, with government support and National Institute of Health, or NIH, assistance, the pharmaceutical industry can manufacture not only medications to counter the virus in those who are infected, but also create vaccines to prevent the spread in the first place. As a partner with the drug industry in developing this next generation of drugs, the government should share in the profits generated and invest them in additional research and development. As you know, in the past, drug companies have used publicly derived knowledge and NIH paid for research to create and bring to market high-priced, highly profitable drugs. The taxpayer has been shortchanged in the process. That needs to change. When it comes to the drug bill Eric references, the bill was passed by the House. I support many of its provisions, including legislation that empowers the Health and Human Services Secretary to negotiate prices for up to 250 of the most expensive drugs each year. The House approved legislation also calls for drug manufacturers who raise their prices by more than the rate of inflation to pay a partial rebate to the federal government. Although I can quibble with certain details of the House bill, my bigger concern is that it was doomed from the start. The House members knew the Senate would never pass this law in its current form. And quite a number of the representatives who voted for this bill had previously supported patent extension and other very favorable legislation on behalf of the drug companies in their district. As such, I worry that the actual support for this type of legislation is insufficient for real change. As such, we won't see the reigning in of egregious drug pricing anytime in the near future, and drug costs will continue to rise at two to three times general medical costs and two to three times wages in 2020 and beyond. Jeremy, let me ask you a question. You live in Iowa and have experienced the start of the run-up to the presidential election. What's been healthcare's role in the debate? Uh, healthcare has been front and center in the conversation among the candidates for the Democratic nomination uh, because it's high on the list of priorities for not only Iowa voters, but Midwestern voters. Uh, the de debate between Medicare for All, Medicare for Some, and the Affordable Care Act expansion has been loud and contentious at every forum I have attended so far. Uh, candidates have been asked multiple questions on the topic, 
And it's clear that a growing number of voters are finding it difficult or impossible to pay their healthcare bills. Remember that Iowa has a large number of small businesses, entrepreneurs, and farmers. Uh, their wages are not going up nearly as fast as the cost of drugs and hospital bills. And for those in rural areas, uh, like many of my family members, access to medical care is declining. No one's certain about the best solution, but everyone wants to know where the candidates stand on the issues and what ideas they have to contribute. One last question for you, Robbie. Eric talked about hospital consolidation. I know you recently wrote an article for Forbes on this topic. What are your thoughts? Hospital consolidation has become rampant across the United States. Last year alone, 102 hospitals either merged or were bought. And rather than hospitals coming together to increase efficiency or create centers of excellence that lead to better patient care, these mergers are all about gaining market control to raise prices. The reality is that when you're a hospital that owns all the facilities in a 50 mile radius, insurance companies and patients have no choice but to pay you whatever you want to charge. The government should impose restrictions and penalties when these mergers become anti-competitive. Monopolies are never in the public's best interest. So far, the government has done little to stop them. Obviously, this leads to a major issue in areas like Iowa, which is what will happen to all rural hospitals. The truth is it's going to be difficult for many people to hear, and especially for those living in smaller communities. Most rural hospitals are simply too small to provide high quality medical care at a reasonable price. The government has subsidized them, but the rising cost of doing so is putting their long-term viability at risk. I believe we need a different model for people who live where hospital options are few and far between. Perhaps we can take a lesson from the US Army to demonstrate that soldiers are more likely to survive and recover when they're stabilized in the battlefield and then transferred to a full service hospital rather than being treated or operated on the ground. I think the same model could work in rural America. First, keep the emergency departments open 24 hours each day, 365 days a year with added staff and new technology. This would allow patients to be resuscitated and stabilized. Second, put in place rapid low cost transportation solutions to facilitate transfer of those needing greater care to larger hospitals and centers of excellence. Finally, connect each of the 24 hour ERs with world-class specialists who can provide consultation and oversee the treatment of the most complex patients. The combination will provide patients in rural areas with superior outcomes and greater clinical expertise. Implementing the model will require legislation and regulatory change. In addition, clinical leaders will need to overcome the fears of smaller towns that their medical needs will be compromised. However, given the demographic numbers, this approach is the best long-term solution to this difficult and complex problem. Before we go, let's take a minute to read some of the listeners' feedback from the Fixing Healthcare survey. This season, we're interested in your thoughts on this important question. How can the U.S. government best improve healthcare? 
I encourage you, our listeners, to weigh in and submit your ideas at robertpearlmd.com. Earlier this season, we heard from listeners who advocate for reducing the role of government in healthcare. For this episode, we hear from listeners Ian Sachs, Lad Uddy, and Ryan Tolman who want to see the government deliver smarter and more effective healthcare solutions. Ian believes the government can improve its VA and Medicare programs with assistance from proven private sector leaders. Ladd says improvements can begin by changing how the U.S. government pays for care within Medicare and Medicaid. Finally, Ryan believes the U.S. government can make the shift to value payments easier by focusing and investing in preventative health. To do so, it will need to place a much larger emphasis on primary care. Robbie, here are three different ways to strengthen existing government programs and models. What do you think about our listener suggestions? As always, Jeremy, our listeners have provided well thought through ideas. Like Ian, I believe that leadership is essential. However, before the government looks to hiring private sector expertise, it needs to figure out whether it really wants to play a bigger role in the delivery system. So far, it has shied away from intervening with doctors and hospitals. One option would be for the government not only to fund healthcare, but also to provide the care directly. The other option would be to remain predominantly a purchaser of healthcare. In either case, experienced leadership expertise would be valuable. Like Lad, I agree. The government needs to shift how it pays for Medicare and Medicaid. In particular, the fee-for-service approach is doomed to fail because invariably the amount of care provided ends up being more than patients need. In a Mayo Clinic study across the country, 30% of everything that doctors do has been shown to be of little or no value to patients. And as part of the government's role, in situations where hospitals and drug companies have gained monopolistic control, it will need to impose the same types of restrictions and penalties that it does in other industries. Finally, like Ryan, I agree. We need more physicians in primary care and fewer in specialty areas. Primary care has been shown to be almost three times more impactful in terms of people's health and longevity, and yet our nation has 11% fewer primary care doctors per capita than we did 20 years ago. Once again, thank you to Ian Sachs, Lad Uddy, Ryan Tolman, and everyone who participated in the Fixing Healthcare survey so far on robertperlmd.com. Please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please give our show a five-star rating and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Together, we can make American healthcare once again the best in the world. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.